Amen. Well, good morning. My name's Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, as I get set up, I know some of you are confused as to why the guy who just prayed changed shirt, shirts and came back up here. Um, that's a common mistake. And so I assure you, we are in fact two distinct persons. Uh, that was our lead pastor, Clint, and I'm Craig. I'm his stunt double. All right. Um, so today we're going to be going through the book of Malachi. I have more words to say than I have time to say them, so we need to dive right in. This short book sums up the message of the Old Testament, and it gives instruction on the nature of God, and it gives us instruction on His people's relationship with Him and with others in the covenant community. So there's a lot for us to hear as a covenant family, a church family. God, through the prophet Malachi, will basically tell us that life in the covenant community looks like loving God and loving people. As we see what God wanted his people to know about following him and living together, I want you to keep in mind the great commandment. In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Love God and love people. This is what life in the kingdom of God looks like. And we'll see today that God has judged and will judge his people based on how well they love him and love others. So let's pray and dive into the text. God, we need you this morning. I beg you to please show us your truth kill any pride that would get in the way of us seeing our sin in relation to your holiness and remind us of your faithfulness and love. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Malachi is divided into six sections. They're commonly referred to as disputations. That's a weird word. I know that. Basically, a disputation means a debate or an argument. So unlike a lot of what we've seen in the minor prophets where God just through the prophet, makes a decree. Here you're going to see a common pattern where God through Malachi will say something, then the Israelites will ask a question, and then God will answer them back um, using their own words. So let's just dive right into Disputation 1 that comes in chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. The Disputation begins in verse 2, but we'll just start with verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. This just simply means God is speaking to us today through Malachi. Verse 2, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So I want to stop right there and just remind you, in case you've already zoned out, that God, God himself, through a prophet, just told his people, I have loved you. And their response was, how? Does this shock you a little bit? Have you ever been out in public and heard a mom tell a child to do something like, come here or put down that toy? And the child responded with a look of indignation and a sassy sounding, why? What was your reaction in that moment? So it may have been to side with the child and be like, I totally get it. Mom is probably a nag, right? And for some of you, that may have been your response. And y'all are probably a little bit ate up and you need to be in community group and they'll pray for you. But... For the rest of us, for us sensible people, your response was probably to make a meme-worthy face, right? Where you, you clenched your teeth and your eyebrows went up and you're like, ooh, they're, they're about to get it, right? Isn't that how normally we feel when we hear something like that? When I read 
that the people of Israel asked God, how have you loved us? I got that feeling. I got surprised that the next sentence in our text wasn't, so God destroyed the Israelites. And then we just (laughs) flip over to Matthew and start right there. But that's not where our story ends because God, like the fictional mother in my story, is more gracious than I, and he responds to his people. And we'll see this over and over again in our time together today. Our God takes sin seriously. God will judge and punish sin, but he loves his people enough that he warns them when they step out of line. And ultimately, he makes a way for them to be saved from their sin. So let's look at how he responds. The Israelites have asked him, how have you loved us? And he returns with a question. It's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So this seems, I I imagine you think this is a strange way to answer the question. How have you loved us? I hate Esau. This doesn't really fit there, right? So quickly you need to know that the reference to God loving Jacob here refers to God choosing Jacob to be a part of redemptive history as a bearer of the messianic promise. That simply means that Jesus, the Messiah, would come from the family of Jacob. Likewise, God hating Esau refers to God rejecting Esau or the opposite of Jacob, not choosing his family to be a part of that promise. And then specifically in this book of Malachi today, Jacob and Esau are going to be stand-in terms for the nations of Israel and Edom. So from now on, we'll refer to Israel and Edom. So Israel says, God, how have you loved us? And God says, I loved Israel and I hated Edom. Now, much like God telling Israel he loved them wasn't enough for the people hearing Malachi speak, this answer would not have been enough. Being part of the side that was chosen and blessed didn't mean much to them because they did not feel very blessed in their current situation. As they heard a reminder that they were chosen and Edom was not, naturally they would have compared their current state to the current state of Edom. Now, if you tuned in last week, Pastor Jeremy preached the book of Haggai to us, and in his introduction, he gave us a great history on the people of Israel and basically how we got to the point that we're at in today's text. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't heard it yet. But quickly, Pastor Jeremy explained that Israel's country was destroyed in 587, and those that remained spent 70 years in Babylonian captivity. And now a remnant or a relatively small group of Israelites had returned and started to work on the temple. Soon they began to drift away from God and suffer under the weight of their own sin. And throughout this time, Edom had remained intact, even flourished. Even, Edom even helped Israel's captors. So Israel is looking here like, God, we do not feel chosen and blessed as they flourish and we suffer. So we're two verses in and the people are not impressed with Malachi's message. I imagine that they're asking questions that we would ask today, like why do bad things happen to good people? Because obviously the Israelites were good people. Or why do good things happen to bad people? Because obviously the Edomites were bad people. Malachi lets the Israelites know that God has not ignored the sins of Edom and that judgment is coming. If you look at the second half of verse 3, he says, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And history tells us that over the course of the next 100 or so years after this was said, that the Edomites were displaced, and over time, Judah was graciously restored. So some of you, 
may be troubled this morning or in this season. Like the Israelites, you may be experiencing financial insecurity. You may be wrestling with your faith. You may be experiencing disappointments from many sides. Please hear me. The love of God is serious. He has chosen a people to love, and his love will never fail. And if you are a part of the family of God, I can tell you that although I don't know when your troubles will end, I promise you that they will not last forever. So you can trust in the love of God. So first, the love of God is serious. Second, disputation, the worship of God is serious. We see this in chapter 1, verses 6 through 2, 9. So in the first disputation, we saw Israel question God's love for them. Now the tables are turned and God questions Israel's love for him. And he specifically focuses on the priests that he has put over the people. In verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? This question from the priest is very much like asking, does this dress make me look fat? Or, or how do you like this haircut? Like it's, it, it is a valid question, but it's one normally you probably don't want to hear the answer to. And that's how it is here. God answers and he explains that their worship of him, specifically the sacrifices that they have offered to him, was unacceptable. In verses 11 through 14, we see that the animals they offered were described as defiled, blind, lame, sick, even stolen. You may have a hard time interpreting what type of animal to bring for a sacrifice. We're out of practice here, but you can't steal one and take it to sacrifice. That's clearly showing there's an issue with your heart. So as a quick review, under Mosaic law, animal sacrifices were required to make atonement for sin, to to make reparations for sin. The standard for animals sacrificed to God was that they had to be unblemished or perfect. In Leviticus, we see uh, speaking about one of those animals, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. So the Israelites were offering and the priests were allowing unacceptable sacrifices to God based on the Mosaic law. And they would have known this law back and forth. This law had been laid out by God to his people. But beyond that, the sacrifices, the animals that they were choosing weren't even making common sense. God says in verse 8 that the animals being offered were of such poor quality that the Israelites wouldn't have even presented an animal like that to an important person in their community. So if the governor, he uses the governor, if the governor had come over and you pulled this animal out and said, hey, we're going to kill this thing and you get to eat it, he would have been like, you know what, I'm good. I don't want this. Like clearly these animals were messed up. They, look, they would have looked like the winner of an ugly dog contest if you've ever seen that online. So King's Cross Church hasn't always met in such luxurious facilities. We actually started out in a middle school cafeteria. We come from humble beginnings, and Pastor Clint likes to say every Sunday it smelled like you know, square pizza and tater tots. I assume many of you maybe are public schoolers like me. You've spent time in cafeterias. Recently, I was in a cafeteria behind a coworker of mine. There were two options that day. You had shrimp Alfredo, and you had mystery meat. Shrimp Alfredo, I know it's dangerous to eat shrimp in a cafeteria, but it felt safer because at least I knew what that was. I didn't know what this thing here was. And my friend was in front of me, and he steps in front of the meat, and the lady says, how can I help you? What would you like? And he says, I'll have the, and there was a pause, meat? (laughs) People that are silly enough to try meat deserve that meat, but you certainly wouldn't 
You wouldn't serve that meat to your boss. You wouldn't serve that meat to the governor. And you certainly wouldn't serve something like that to a holy God. God deserves the finest that his people have to offer. Lazy, indifferent, disobedient, flippant worship of God reveals a lazy, indifferent, disobedient heart. And what were the results of this poor worship? God says that they profaned his name. If the people of God, those chosen by him to worship him and make his name known, are indifferent to him and worship him wrongly, they misrepresent his holiness and they degrace his name in front of a watching world. Church, do you take the worship of God seriously? Do you, like the Israelites Malachi confronted, go through religious motions to check the box? Or do you humbly and gratefully worship the Lord of armies whose name will be great among the nations? They defiled the Lord's table by placing unworthy offerings on it. Do you defile the Lord's table by eating and drinking mindlessly when we take communion? Or do you worshipfully participate, remembering your salvation from sin and death? The worship of God is serious. Pastors, ministry leaders, those aspiring to those positions one day, do you take the worship of God serious? Although the Israelites as a whole sinned against God by worshiping wrongly, God speaks here directly to the priests, to those who were supposed to lead his people and instruct them about improper worship. God tells the priests to turn from their ways or he will curse them and their descendants. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay at the heart. Matthew Henry said of this text, he says it beautifully, so, so lock in with me. Nothing profanes the name of God more than the misconduct of those whose business it is to do honor to it. Pastors and leaders, take the worship of God seriously. Disputation 3, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, we see that God takes covenant relationships seriously. In his third disputation, Malachi focuses on the relationships between God's people, specifically the covenant of marriage. He begins with those that have married outside the faith, and then he confronts those who are divorcing without biblical grounds. So first, the Israelites were not allowed to marry outside of the covenant people. They were not to marry someone of a different religion. Why? was simply because if their purpose in life was to honor God, inviting a spiritually destructive element into the community was not an option. If you marry outside the community of faith, you are marrying someone who worships another God. You cannot bring that into the covenant family of God. This is serious. Listen to how God speaks of this in verses 11 through 12. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. God says that marrying someone who worships a foreign God should lead to that man being cut off and that his worship is no longer acceptable to God. This is serious. Likewise, Christians are not to marry non-Christians. 1 Corinthians 7 says that a widow can marry in the Lord, or she's permitted to marry, but it must be to a fellow believer. 2 Corinthians 6 says Christians should not be unequally yoked. Christians marry Christians, or they don't marry. 
Pastor Tony Evans explains it like this. When a Christian marries a non-Christian, there will be a clash of gods and covenants. Don't partner with someone who doesn't share your faith because you're going in two different directions. So a couple practical things, single Christians, don't date non-Christians. You're going in two different directions, and there's no way that that can turn back right. We don't evangelate, and we don't just hang out hoping that things will work out. Christians, we date Christians, married Christians whose spouses are not Christians. Keep living like a Christian and pray for God to save your spouse's soul. And then go to a community group and ask them to pray for your spouse too. God hears the prayers of the saints and people come to faith. So first, marriage is serious and God's people don't marry outside the faith. And second, God's people don't divorce without biblical grounds. I like the way one commentary explains marriage. It says, marriage is not just a contract, a two-way relationship between a husband and wife, but it is a covenant, a three-way relationship of responsibilities and privileges, which involves God as a witness to whom the couple is permanently accountable. When Christians marry, they're saying before God and others that this is a permanent relationship. Marriage exists to glorify God, and as verse 15 says, to produce godly offspring. So if we divorce for non-biblical reasons, God is not glorified, and it takes away the ability to produce godly offspring. God hates it. And in verse 13, we see that he does not respect the offerings of men that do this. He says, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Covenants, specifically marriage covenants, are serious. Faithlessness in your marriage is a sign of faithlessness in your relationship with God, and it renders your worship worthless. Like the Israelites, Christians are to take marriage seriously and not get divorced for non-biblical reasons today. So I was at Connect class Friday night. I see many faces here that were there. Um, sorry, I didn't talk much. I was trying to type this out. And I heard Pastor Clint talk about divorce like he always does. And he pointed out that biblically divorce is allowed in cases of adultery and abandonment. And that's it. And it, once again, Pastor Tony Evans clearly explains this. He says, call it what you like. This is Tony Evans. This is not me. So let's just listen to this. Call it what you like, but getting a no-fault divorce and separating for irreconcilable differences is not a covenantal option. In God's eyes, it's a treacherous act with spiritual consequences. Christian, take marriage seriously. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that marriage puts on display to the watching world the relationship between Christ and the church. This is a big deal. So married Christian, love and support your spouse. Don't look for a newer, shinier spouse. The way you know that you married the right person is that you are married to them right now. And can I just say in our text today that he spoke specifically to men. Now I know contextually men were the ones that could seek out a divorce here. So I get that. But if you will please allow me this aside, Christian men, love your wife. Be a lifelong student of the gift that is your wife. Lead your wife. Don't let jobs or kids or hobbies get in the way of the covenant you made with her and before God. Be a man and love your wife. Divorced Christian. I don't know the circumstances of your divorce, but I am sorry. Remain faithful to God. And if you've never processed your divorce with a Christian friend or a community group or a pastor, I'd encourage you to do so. 
Covenant relationships are serious to God. All Christians support Christian marriages. God takes them seriously and so should we. Disputation 4, chapter 2, verses 17 through 3, 5. Disputation 4 begins in verse 17 with the prophet telling the Israelites that you have wearied the Lord with your words. Again, they question, how have we wearied him? And once again, there's a direct answer. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? The Israelites were blinded from the truth by their current circumstances. Time and time again throughout the history of the Israelites, God had shown his faithfulness to his people. And time and time again, they had forgotten. God had literally just laid out an account of their sin, how they were being treacherous to each other, how they were disobeying him, how they were wrongfully divorcing their wives, yet they grumbled and complained that God did not bring justice, saying that God delights in the evildoer, yet not realizing that they were the very evildoers that they were complaining about. Do we not do the same thing? Do we not see ourselves in a gracious light while demanding justice toward others and for ourselves? God has an answer for the Israelites and for us today. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God answers their request and says he will come. But when God comes, he won't be coming to deal with their complaints. He'll be coming to deal with his. He'll deal with his complaints by dealing with sin. He'll do this by purifying and by judging. In verses 2 through 4, the prophet explains God's purification process. It says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. God will come, and he will make things right. But it's not going to be fun and exciting like they assumed. He's going to start by purifying his sinful people. They were ready to receive what they thought would be good for them, a glorious temple, prosperity, prominence, wealth. Instead, God promised to give them what was best for them, freedom from their sin and freedom from death. They expected prosperity, but God promised them fire and pain as he worked on them to make them pure and clean. But it would be for their good and for his glory. Now, this purifying process by God might not be fun, but it would result in his people being restored to right relationship with him and their worship once again being pleasing and acceptable to him. We see in verse 4, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. So God will come. He will purify and restore, but he will also judge. Verse 5 says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. In his complaint, God points out multiple ways his people were failing to love others. So at first, they were not loving God correctly by worshiping wrongly, and they were not loving people correctly by treating marriage wrongly. But now he's showing all the myriad of ways that they are treating others wrongly. God is holy and just. He will not let sin against him and his people last forever. Christian, the justice of God is serious. You may not understand the things that you're going through in the season that you're in, but God is faithful. 
He loves his people. He loves you enough to put you through the refiner's fire or the holy washing machine or both to ensure that you will be presented pure and clean as you worship him. Non-Christian, the justice of God is serious. God is perfect. He does not sin. He is holy. He is excellent. He is virtuous. There is nothing and no one better than the God of the Bible. And because of his perfection, sin cannot be in his presence. As we just read, he will judge sinners. That is scary, but there is hope. And as we build to the conclusion, God will explain this hope to Israel and to us. So let's look at Disputation 5. That's in chapter 3, starting in verse 6. In this disputation, Malachi returns to the topic of offerings, but now the focus is not on animal sacrifices, but on giving. Look at verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Verse 6 kind of closes out the last section and prepares us for this section. God lets his people know judgment has come and is coming. And the only reason that they have survived or will survive is because God is faithful. If not for the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, Israel's rebellion would have destroyed them long before Malachi got a chance to warn them. Verse 7 begins this disputation's accusation saying that they have turned aside and they ask how they can return and yet he delivers another accusation. Verse 8 says, they are not giving their tithes and offerings. Uh-oh. God had set up a system in the law where his people would give a tithe of what they produced. Basically, there was a set amount of their produce that they would give, and that in turn would help support the operations of the temple, support the priests, and support the poor. And God says in verses 8 and 9 that the whole nation, by not giving what they should, was robbing not the temple, the priests, and the poor, but robbing God himself. Here's what's crazy. The reason that they weren't giving back to God was because they felt like God wasn't blessing them. So there was a drought. There was crop failure. There were other things that we've already discussed. But their problems existed because they were cursed by God because they were not faithful to him. Verse 9, we see, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Church, God's people give to God as an act of worship to support the mission of God. Giving shows that they trust him, and it shows that they rightly understand their possessions as gifts from God and not something that they have earned. God doesn't command that his people give to him so they will be blessed. However, God promises that if his people are faithful to be obedient, he will bless. Just listen to him explain his own goodness in verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So how does this blessing work? God blesses the faithfulness of his people. God's people exist to glorify him. So his blessing looks a lot like blessing the work of those people, which gets him in turn more glory. So in summary, this passage is saying that God will get glory from his people loving and serving him rightly. But this passage is not saying, hey, you individual, give a lot of money to this church or ministry, then it will be your season. And then you can buy all the things that you've always wanted. 
Now, you may look back at these verses and you, I just read and say, but it does say that there will be no more need and the vine will bear and all nations will call him blessed. Yes, God may choose to bless some individuals more than others. But even in that, the goal is for the nations to see how great God is. And when some receive more material blessings than others, that's an opportunity, opportunity for them to give even more back to the mission of God. Church, the provision of God is serious. It is not something to be manipulated, but it is to be seen and acknowledged. Worship God. Be faithful to give to the church in response to what he has given you. Trust that he will provide. And then sleep like a Christian, trusting that he will hold the world together because he does not need rest like you. Disputation 6, we look at chapters 13, sorry, chapter 3, verse 13 through 4, 3. Malachi says in verse 13, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This morning we have seen God confront his people about their worship, their relationships, and their trust in him. He has shown them that their current problems are due to their behavior and their attitudes towards him. And yet once again we see their terrible attitude toward God. They say it is useless to serve God. I mean, they aren't getting anything out of it, and those that don't serve God are doing better than they are, so why should we serve God? Friends, circumstances don't change the love and faithfulness of God. God is always there, always working, always loving. Likewise, circumstances can't determine the level of devotion God's people are willing to give to him. Work being hard, relationships being difficult, bank accounts being low or empty— Bad things happening to good people, good things happening to bad people. These things can't be how we determine the worth of our relationship with God. Humans are finite beings who have such a small view of the world around us and of history. Israel is looking for an immediate blessing, forgetting that they worship and serve an eternal God in whom there are pleasures forevermore. Now, our passage today has been dark, but there is a glimmer of hope. In verse 16, we see that some of the Israelites still have a right view of God. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. In good times and bad in feast, in famine, when money is flowing in and when things are tight, God loves and remembers his people. Ultimately, his people will be called home and rewarded, while those that don't know him, those that may have prospered in their short time on earth, will be judged. Verse 1 of chapter 4 speaks of the coming day of the Lord. On that day, God says of those that aren't part of his covenant family, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. The day, that, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Israel has a, a promised root that will end up in the Messiah. And God is saying those he judges will be wiped out from history and from the earth. But to those who worship and fear him, he gives this promise. Looking in verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. 
You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. God tells his people to take heart. The fearsome Lord of armies will come. He will judge the world. He will consume the wicked in fire. But when he sees his children, he will have compassion and he will shelter them in his wings. Church, the faithfulness of God is serious. From the rising to the setting of the sun, from creation to destruction, God is faithful. Don't let your current circumstances keep you from seeing the love and the faithfulness of God. As we come to the end of this book, Malachi sums up his prophecy by reminding the Israelites to remember the law of Moses, the promise of Elijah, and the coming day of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4, we see, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Oreb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So Moses is shorthand for the law. Elijah is shorthand for the prophets. So when he says, remember Moses, he's telling them to obey the law. When he says, I will send you Elijah, he's saying, I will send a prophet. Look for him, expect him, and listen to him. Unlike Malachi's listeners, we have the rest of the Bible to tell us what happened. In church, God did send that prophet. In Matthew 11, we read, As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's Malachi 3.1. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. God promised a prophet and the prophet came. Malachi 4, 4 through 6 said this prophet would come before the day of the Lord to try to get the people to love God and each other rightly before the Lord came to judge and destroy. He said, and John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, turn away from your sin, turn to faith in God. This is your chance because God is coming and God did come. Jesus Christ, the only, the one who John the Baptist said was so great that John could not carry his sandals, came to earth preaching and teaching about his kingdom and inviting people to join him. Later in the book of Matthew, we see Jesus appear before three of his disciples on a mountain and beside him appeared Moses and Elijah, who we were told to look to. These disciples had been told their entire lives to listen to Moses and Elijah, but now Jesus is here. Jesus' appearance changes, his face shone like the sun, his clothes lit up, which distinguished him from Moses and Elijah already. They just had normal faces and clothes. And lest there be any confusion about who was greater, God the Father himself spoke from a cloud and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus' superiority over Moses and Elijah was established. Jesus was God's beloved son, and Jesus was now the focus of true disciples of God. So church, what do we do? We listen to Jesus. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love and serve Jesus. Love and serve others. Love God. Love people. Christian, take following God seriously. Grow in love, faith, and knowledge of your Savior Jesus. Worship Him rightly. Be a part of a church and serve that church gladly. Give freely to that church because God has blessed you by saving you and giving you possessions. Care about others, specifically your church family. Bear their burdens. Pray for them. Serve with them. Non-Christian, take what you have heard about God today seriously. You've heard a lot today about how God hates sin and is coming to judge sin. And guess what? Everyone in this room is a sinner. So what can you do? You can come to Christ. He is the answer to the problem of sin. He perfectly lived out the law of Moses. He was the answer the prophets were pointing to. He is the son of God and he is worthy of worship. As we sang earlier, he can pull you out from under the weight of sin, pour out his grace on you and change your heart. And as we're about to sing, God will judge sin. But Jesus was willing to take the punishment in your place. He died on a cross as a sacrifice for sinners. Take Jesus seriously. Trust in him. Let's pray.